0: Going on a Nile cruise is the perfect way to explore all the treasures that line its West Bank. It is fascinating to sit on deck and watching these rural villages go by. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about a fascinating place, a place called Egypt. And the first time I went to Egypt was in 1985, on a weekend cruise from Limassol, from Cyprus, where I worked at the time and where I live now. We spent two nights on a cruise ship. Not the kind of cruise ship that you have in mind now, the downgraded version. It could also be called a rust bucket. And we had a one-day excursion from Alexandria to the pyramids, the National Museum and a papyrus factory. All I remember from this trip was the traffic in Cairo, especially coming from Cyprus, where life was very slow in 1985. I thought it was totally crazy how they drove. And another thing that really got me annoyed was that I had to pay $10 to take a picture to sit on a camel at the pyramids. And how disappointed I was after queuing to go inside Khufu's pyramid and going down a scary and like narrow wooden walkway that takes you to the inner chamber where there is absolutely nothing. No treasures, no decorations, just an empty room. One day in this beautiful country is like a drop in the ocean and thank God I got the opportunity to visit properly. When I was assigned several Nile cruises in 1989 as my first trips for Kuoni Travel, the new company that I had started working for I was very curious what Egypt would feel like. I traveled with the tour groups from Zurich to Cairo on Egypt Air. And I remember that the people who already asked me during the flight what they need to avoid eating and drinking, they were usually the ones who ended up getting sick. It's a bit of a mind game, you know, you're planning it ahead. I'm not saying that one doesn't have to be careful, but some people were so paranoid, generally not only in Egypt, in other places, to eat food from any place that doesn't look immaculately clean and spotless. This is perfectly understandable because nobody wants to get sick during a holiday. But on the other hand, being overly cautious can strip away a great deal of value and fun from your travel experience, when it effectively prevents you from sampling new and often wonderful dishes which you may never have seen before. In short, decisions about what to eat in Egypt shouldn't be guided only by things such as perceived food hygiene or its lack. As it is so often the case, a little bit of common sense can go a long way in helping you to avoid unnecessary stomach problems. There are so many delicious dishes in Egypt. Like all the food in this area of the Middle East or Eastern Mediterranean, I always say that if there wasn't politics and religion, this area is all the same. It's the same food, it's the same mentality, it's the same beautiful hospitality. Okay, that's another story. Let's not talk about that. But let's talk about all the beautiful things. Full medam, tamia, which is also called falafel in other places, kofta, shawarma, mulukia, baba ganoush, hummus, and so much more. We were always equipped with lots of emodium in case one of our clients did end up with Pharaoh's curse. But let's talk about these beautiful trips. What a way to start a podcast episode talking about diarrhea. We had a fantastic local agent in Egypt. I think the name was Makram and they supplied us with a fantastic program and amazing local guides. They were well-educated, knowledgeable, absolutely loved their country. They had been everywhere. They had seen it all. They knew how to treat people and they were fun. They wanted us to see the best of Egypt, and they made us feel safe. Egyptians are friendly and helpful, except for a few, like everywhere in the world. We usually spent two nights in Cairo at the Ramses Hilton, which was a very tall and quite ugly hotel, but from certain rooms one could see Tahrir Square, the Liberation Square in English, and it fascinated me to watch the traffic there. I was always surprised that the drivers managed to get past each other and that the pedestrians managed to go across and actually end up alive on the other side. By the way, Tahrir Square is known to people. It became the hub of the revolution which unseated President Hosni Mubarak in February 2011. One of the most important visits were the majestic pyramids of Giza, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The UNESCO heritage-listed site is home to six pyramids, magnificent burial tombs built for the kings of the 4th dynasty around 4,500 years ago. This also includes the great pyramid built for King Khufu, where I went down on my first visit and found nothing and keeping loyal guard is the Sphinx a mythical hybrid of human and lion another Cairo must do was the Egyptian Museum of Antiquities and I read somewhere that it has been renovated and I think it's supposed to open again in 2021 many of the people who traveled with our tour groups were very interested in all these artifacts Some had studied history and some even Egyptology. And the local tour guides used to love these people because that's when they could really shine and explain. Of course, then there were also those people who got bored and they complained that the visits were too long and that the guides were saying too much. It wasn't always easy to keep a happy balance. One of the most fascinating parts of the museum, in my opinion, was the King Tutankhamun collection. He is the most well-known Egyptian pharaoh, despite only ruling for a short while. This boy king, as they call him, was only nine years old when he became ruler. I mean, imagine that. He was nine years old and he became a ruler. It's like a child. In 1922, the British archaeologist Howard Carter unearthed an outstanding collection of treasures in Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings, which revealed the Egyptians' belief in the afterlife. These include King Tut's solid gold bed, his intricately carved throne and chariot, plus hundreds of other everyday items which were all buried to make the pharaoh's next life as comfortable as possible. I was always happy that the royal mummy room was an extra ticket and not included in our tour, because seeing these preserved kings and queens made me feel nauseous, especially Ramses I with his reddish hair and teeth, considering that he lived 3,000 years ago. And there he was looking at me, I had once gone back to the museum on my own and bought a mummy room ticket because I was curious, but I had no desire to go back there. Of course, it's a very personal thing. I'm sure there is plenty of people who would love to visit all the mummies and see it. One of my favorite places in Cairo was the famous Khan el khalili Bazaar. And our local tour guides used to guide us very safely past the hawkers, who were lined up to sell us all sorts of goods and we always had a wonderful time hustling and helping my clients bring the price down because I was already trained from working in Tunisia and Morocco before. We used to have so much fun. The hawkers knew a few words in any conceivable language, you know, was French, Swiss, German, anything that we knew they knew. And even though they were eager to sell, they were also always ready to crack a joke. After three days in Cairo, we were ready to fly to Luxor and then board one of the luxury Nile cruise ships while visiting Luxor as well. Because in my opinion, Luxor, which was once the capital of ancient Egypt, has just as much to offer as Cairo. And life is somehow more relaxed. There is so much to see. I mean, just spending time in Karnak, Luxor Temple. And then another visit is the Valley of the Kings, the Temple of Queen Hatshepsut, and so much more. I also remember taking people to a lovely jewelry shop in Luxor, where people had the chance to buy cartouche necklaces and these pendants with their names in hieroglyphs and we earned good commission. Mr. Ruggy used to drop off an envelope at the cruise ship a few hours after the purchases. Going on a Nile cruise is the perfect way to explore all the treasures that line its West Bank. It is fascinating to sit on deck, having a tea or a coffee and watching these rural villages go by, where you feel like time has stood still, watching oxen in the midday heat, or children play and then wave to the ship, excitedly and even run with the ship for a while. Cruising offers a great way to hop off to visit the temples, including Komombo, for example, the only one dedicated to two gods, the crocodile-headed Sobek and the falcon-headed Horus, the elder. Many still have intact hieroglyphic adorning their walls, providing a fascinating insight into Egyptian culture. There is so much history. There is so much to know. I used to admire those local guides. The stuff that they had in their head was unbelievable. Life on those cruise ships was fun. We had Egyptian nights and we all dressed up with clothes which we had bought at the bazaar. I so often had clients who felt that in a previous life they had lived in Egypt. So many women who thought that in a previous life they were Cleopatra or Hatshepsut or Nefertari or Nefertiti. I always listened and agreed. I don't know how many Egyptian queens I have traveled with, but there were lots. One day, just shortly before we were going on a shore excursion, I went out on my balcony to hang something up. And I hear click, and the door to my cabin had closed. I had actually locked myself out on the small balcony, and there was no one in sight because most people had already gone downstairs to leave the ship for the excursion. I shouted to the waiters that I could see a few stories further down in the coffee shop, but they couldn't hear me because there was noise from the engines and from, I don't know, it was just too noisy. So all I could do was throw down the cushion of my deck chair for someone to notice me and let me out. And thank God they did. Maybe I would still be on that balcony today. Anyway, arriving in Aswan after a few days on the cruise and visiting all the temples and anything that's available to visit along the Nile wasn't the end of the trip. I actually believe that it was the beginning of a very exciting part. You see, Egypt is geographically a very fascinating place. It is kind of a Middle Eastern nation in the north of the African continent and also partly Asia, while it borders the Mediterranean Sea in the north and then the Red Sea in the east. However, being in Aswan is a whole different ball game. It borders Nubia and bridges Egypt and Sudan. The people in Aswan are a mixture of Egyptians and Nubians. They're extremely friendly and hospitable, lovely. One of the excursions which I absolutely loved was sailing by felucca to the Aga Khan Mausoleum to Kitchener Island, Elephant Island. These tours used to be in the afternoon and end up just around sunset. And this was magical. It was magical to sit on these feluccas and watch the sunset. And Except for the one time, of course, when one of my clients leaned out too far to take a photograph and fell in the water. But then again, we were used to all sorts of incidents. And then there was Lake Nasser, which produces most of Egypt's hydroelectricity. And it's also a very valuable source of fresh water, It was created as a result of the construction of the Aswan High Dam between 1958 and 1970. And it's named after Gamal Abdel Nasser, the second president of Egypt. And of course, when the area got flooded, after the construction of the dam, the great sun temple of Ramses II and the temple of the Queen Nefertari, which were discovered in 1813, When they were almost covered with sand, they had to be moved because they are amazing. They needed to be moved. Both temples were moved in 1960 by the help of the Egyptian government and the UNESCO to avoid the rising water of the Nile. Ramses II built the temple mostly to honour himself, as inside there is a mural depicting his famous victory at Kadesh Battle, where his army defeated his enemies. On the north of Ramses' temple, the Nefertari temple, which was built by Ramses II to his favorite wife queen, who was his favorite among 200 wives and concubines. And these famous temples were the reason for another fantastic excursion. We used to fly to Abu Simbel just for the day to visit the temples. The flight from Aswan to Abu Simbel offered some very interesting views of the Nile, as it made its way north towards the Mediterranean. From the plain, you can really grasp that the Nile is the Egyptian lifeline and that only a few miles from its banks on either side, there is nothing but desert. That's why the flooding of this area was so important and that's why the Aswan Dam had such an impact. And sometimes the flights to Abu Simbel They were very bumpy because of the strong thermal conditions above the desert. Egypt Air had fantastic pilots. They were mostly army pilots who then later on started working for Egypt Air. Once landed in Abu Simbel, we were taken by bus to the temples and then back to the airport to fly back to Aswan. On one of my special Egypt trips, I actually stayed a night in Abu Simbel. There are some hotels where most of the people just stay for one night because they want to watch the sound and light event in the evening and the sunrise in the morning. There are two dates per year in February and October when the sun rays fall directly on the faces of the statues of Pharaoh Ramses II and the gods of creation and light Ptah, Amen and Herakuti. It was very memorable and an emotional experience. I can really recommend that to anybody. Waking up at dawn and then passing into the vestibule and the sanctuary, and then you will be amazed at this irresistible solemnity at the moment when the sun passes over the hills and the dim halls are suddenly transformed into a brilliantly lit temple. It's a perfect moment to appreciate the ancient Egyptian spirit of worship. It's kind of a magical moment. There are a few places in the world where I have this feeling. Not all my tours had the same program or route. And usually after Abu Simbel, we would either fly down back to Aswan and then to Cairo the next morning and home to Switzerland. But some of the participants stayed on either in Hurghada or in Sharm el-Sheikh for a beach holiday or to go diving in the Red Sea. On one of my tours, all the group was going to Hurghada. We were supposed to go by bus to Luxor and then take a plane to Hurghada, but found out on the way that the flight was cancelled because the plane had a technical issue. So we stopped off for a rest at the Peak Hotel in Luxor, We organized a picnic box for everyone, and then we drove over four hours, mostly through the desert. I used to love these unexpected changes. I used to love when things went wrong or when the program got shook up a bit. Of course, some people complained, but there was nothing we could do. And I used to feel like when something unexpected happened, I could show what I was made of. I never understood why people complained when there is a day a delay or a cancellation because of a technical issue would they have preferred to go on an unsafe plane some of the people we traveled with were very hard to please but we always found a way to soothe them sometimes not the same but the next day because mostly people want attention people wanted to feel important and that's what they got when we realized that they needed it. During my master life coach training, which is not so long ago, five, six years ago, during my training in Dubai, I met my beautiful Egyptian friend Nihal. And we both love to walk, we're both walkers. So we teamed up after those long training days in a closed conference room for a walk nearly every night. I visited her in Cairo in 2018, I think. And I hadn't been to Egypt since those trips that I was previously talking about in 1989. Oh my God, the place had grown. My friend lived in Samalek, which is the northern part of Gezira Island in the Nile River, and it's connected to the mainland with three bridges. I didn't stay in Cairo this time because we went to spend the weekend in Sohna, and on the way I saw the construction of new Cairo. New Cairo is one of the new cities which has been built in and around Cairo to alleviate the congestion in downtown Cairo. It was established in the year 2000 by presidential decree and will eventually hold a population of 5 million people. You have to imagine between 1989 when I was there last time and 2020 or 2021 like now, the population of Egypt has grown from fifty-five millions to over a hundred millions, and all those people need to be housed somewhere. Sohna is a beautiful place; I had never heard of it before, and I was so delighted to spend time there. It's a place where people from Cairo have a holiday home, and get some fresh air over the weekend. And we met up with some of Nihal's friends, And it was another beautiful, beautiful Egypt experience. And I want to end this episode by saying that I really need to go back to this amazing, inspiring country full of beautiful people. Just talking about it makes me really miss it. If you enjoy my podcast, please subscribe and tell your family and all your friends about it. You can find all the information in the show notes. If you like what you hear and you want to know more about what I do, check out my website www.thesoulkit.com.